Who is it? EST. What? And it's 7.32 PST. Yeah. PM, we should specify. (laughs) Welcome to Twin Peaks Peaks. Hi, it's Matt, if you couldn't tell. A little scratchy today. It's also been about mm, seven months since the last episode. This is true. Uh, this is Ashley, and welcome to the Twin Peaks Peaks Cross-Coastal Edition, which is how we're going to be recording from here on out, unless you move... Well, this is how we're going to be recording from here on out. Knock on wood, which I will do very softly on this desk. Um, yeah, I live in uh, New York City now, for those who don't stalk me on Twitter or know me personally. Shoutouts to, to mom. Hi, mom. Gosh, what is there to say other than that? I now live the furthest I've ever lived from North Bend, Washington. I now don't have super cool... I live very close to where they film Twin Peaks cred, so now I'm just some some guy online talking about a TV show that was on before I was born. Ashley, you could still go there in like an hour and a half. <laughs> like, it's easy. An hour and a half... <laughs> I guess it's yeah, it's longer than that. It's more like three. I mean, if you're it's, speeding, you could cut cut it down on quite a bit. Yeah, so I just have to hit what a hundred and hundred and ten miles per hour, hundred and twenty. Yeah, you just well, you just gotta enter the Black Lodge somewhere near Portland and then exit near North Bend. Right, right. I can do that. <laughs> you gotta pull a Philip Jeffries. You gotta appear in one place and disappear. Right. Vice versa, I guess. It's the episode you've all been waiting for. Uh, this is us kicking off our Westworld podcast. Uh, we're the only <laughs> Westworld podcast. We're going to keep the Twin Peaks Peaks name and, and still talk about Twin Peaks. But, uh, you know, we saw this new awesome show came out and 
nobody started a podcast about it. Not a single person. So I haven't really seen any buzz online. I don't know if you guys know that uh, Westworld was nominated for a Golden Globe this morning. We just want to get the word out about this really underappreciated show on a channel you might have heard of uh, called HBO. Uh, you might know it better as Home Box Office. Yeah, it's right. kind of crazy that nobody knows about this show. I mean, there's some pretty big names attached to it. J.J. Abrams, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> like, come on. David Fincher. Is that true? No. Okay. <laughs> Did Fincher do TV recently? House of Cards. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, not season three or whatever the good one was recently. I don't know. All of House of Cards blends together right now. This is where I would do um, my bad Southern accent Kevin Spacey impression, but I don't mm -hmm. really have one. So I guess I'll just I'll just skip over that and uh, work our way towards talking about The Secret History of Twin Peaks by Mark Frost, what we're actually here to talk about. Yeah, it came out a while ago, and we're just talking about it now because you know what? Life... Life gets in the way sometimes. Sometimes sometimes there's a U.S. presidential election between when a book comes out and when you are able to find the time and energy to talk about it. Life comes at you fast, as they say. And we should also welcome the listeners who have discovered Twin Peaks Peaks and joined us since we last recorded um, The Missing Pieces in May. We're going to be covering... Yeah, we're going to be covering season three, but for now we are covering Presumably. This. Look, we we just <laughs> talked about something totally unexpected that happened and kind of threw our plans off course. Given that we make it to season three, we will cover season three. <laughs> given, this, given that season three comes out. All things being constant. All things being constant. Yeah, we'll talk about season three and... And welcome. And if you've been waiting for this episode, we uh, we hope you enjoy it. We have real for once show notes <laughs> that we shared and worked on together instead of just like my manic scribblings and uh, Ashley's excuse to look at her phone while we record. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing yeah. it anyway. <laughs> You're doing it anyway. Well, now now you just have the show notes open in a tab and then your phone, like, down below your webcam the so I can't see it. The show notes are open on my phone because my computer could well oh, crash. <laughs> mm, that is a good idea. But don't, don't, don't you dare go over to Instagram or something. Yeah, so this is, this is a meaty, uh, nearly textbook-sized novel, epistolary novel, weirdly enough, uh, or, like, found, found document novel. It's... Very odd in format, and Mark Frost is the the sole sort of person involved here. It doesn't really seem like there's a touch of David Lynch or anybody else involved with the show in terms of the content, though if you have the audiobook version, uh, a bunch of the cast uh, lent their voices to to that version. So if you haven't picked up the book, if you know if you haven't uh, spoil it for yourself, or if you have, maybe you want to just check out the audiobook version. I mean, Kyle and a few others, including I think, I think maybe one or two new cast members, if I recall correctly, will will read to you. I think there's been some speculation, but 
the new cast members haven't really been confirmed whether they're also doing, well, some of them. Most notably, the voice of the archivist has not been Mm. confirmed as taking on that role in the series. And we should mention, so you have the physical copy of the book. Yep, I do. And I have the ebook. And so my understanding is that in the physical copy of the book, if you're wearing um, red and blue 3D glasses, <laughs> you can see <laughs> some bonus content, some Easter eggs. If you're wearing your your cosplay ready Dr. Jacoby glasses, uh, I would exactly. say 3D glasses are for are for uh, chumps. Right. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, there's a couple. There's a few pages where they do the uh, the red blue 3D. And I, I gotta say, I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that uh, that Jacoby is wearing those in the show, I would find that right out the gate extremely tacky. Did you ever? Did you ever encounter the um, the Artemis Fowl book series in like middle school? I have like a vivid memory of trying to read the first chapter multiple times and never getting farther than that. I will I will fess up and say I did read the first couple books in that series and I liked them. They were basically like D&D versions of like kiddified William Gibson cyberpunk novels with like mm-hmm. a little like dash of Harry Potter and Richie Rich thrown in around the edges. Mm-hmm. Like the main character was just this insufferable rich boy genius. Um, I don't even think as a kid I identified with him because I was like, this kid kind of seems like an amoral jerk. Why is he the why is he the hero? Mm-hmm. You know, of course, that still persists into adulthood with people identifying with Walter White. So what do I know? Good point. Those books all had like running across the top in like a not a coded language, but, you know, when they like a decoder ring thing where you're just you, it's right. just the alphabet transposed and then written in a different script. So you have to. Uh, go through the tedious translation of that. They had that running along the top of every book. And when I flipped open to the uh, first 3D red-blue page, I was like, at least it's clear without the glasses what you're looking at. If there was one that was like over the top, like, can you figure out what it is? Uh, I would have probably taken a break from the book right then. Right. Right. What was the the number one standout, most frustrating stylistic choice for you about this book? (laughs) And you can't say the fact that most of it is about uh, things that don't deal with the show. The the ebook form, and I'm reading like a a real ebook form. I'm not just reading like a scan that someone put on the internet. And you actually can't zoom in on the documents, so I have my choice between squinting and just kind of hoping that this is summarized on the next page. Oof. Uh, which is uh, probably unique to the ebook format, but, you know, I don't hate the ebook format, and I feel like particularly for The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which feels so encyclopedic, I don't know. I didn't really feel like I needed a physical copy of the book. I don't know. I wasn't super impressed with, like, the epistolary, like, dossier format because that's been around for a while, but I could see how it worked well for the medium, and, it you know, it's very well put together i will say that and it's it's really far reaching and it is incredibly well researched yes yes um you know it just insists on inserting uh dougie milford into all of american conspiracy theory history yeah i mean i have some thoughts on i have some thoughts on dougie and his uh placement in the twin peaks canon uh after this book 
But I think that this is the now the third book related to Twin Peaks uh, that is treated like it's a found document that exists in the in the reality of the world in a sense. Uh, there's not there's not been a, a Twin Peaks sequel novel uh, that's just narrative. Uh, that's mm-hmm. in a conventional format. Yes. You've got Laura's secret diary and you've got the transcripts of Cooper's tapes. And now this. And so I think it is nice that, you know, after 25 years, what's the first thing we're going to get is this is inarguable. This is a document, a work that is intended for big fans of the show. This is mm-hmm. not something pushed on by showtime to get new people interested in even checking out the old episodes then and then you know turning out for season three it is directed towards the v hardcore and it's i think even more so directed towards uh people who care deeply about the mysteries at play in twin peaks and more so care deeply about their own feelings on their, those mysteries, maybe more so um, sort of the response that those mysteries brings out of them more so than the say answers uh, waiting at the end of the tunnel with that perspective, having it centered so much around Dougie Milford, the secret life of Dougie Milford could have also just been the secret (laughs) history of Doug Milford could have been the name of this book. Um, and it would be fairly accurate, you know, through that lens, I think, you know, it, it sort of sets out to do a thing. And then I guess it's up to us to discuss whether or not that thing is successful or whether or not, you know, at least you and I like it. I don't know. Uh, but let me bring up the show notes. Yeah. Should we get to the, should we get to the, you know, previously on Twin Peaks meet the character revelations or should we start a little bit more? more broad because the book doesn't start anywhere near uh anywhere near the timeline of the show it's funny that you bring up um answers because i feel like this book actually offers so much in the way of answers um a little bit i think excessively and maybe to the detriment of the twin peaks mythology which is really what i want to talk about but speaking to um kind of the audience that this book was designed for I think it's been pretty successful in that audience. You went to the book signing, I believe, the the Mark Frost book tour, because Mark Frost did a whole nationwide book tour kind of supporting the secret history of Twin Peaks. Uh, what was your experience like at the New York stop? Uh, so he appeared at a Barnes and Noble uh, and turnout was great. I saw, the, I saw him behind the... Uh, behind the audio controls talking to the audio guy i don't know if the audio guy was on uh on assignment from you know barnes and noble or just like a local contractor if maybe mark frost was traveling with this guy but he was being very protective of his laptop and the cd that i believe had the the audio clips from from the audiobook that he played loaded up on it and yeah turnout was good i know that there were other people related to other Twin Peaks podcasts in attendance there. And so, you know, the the people who this book was for turned out and I didn't see anybody get up and walk away without, you know, wanting to uh, not only get their book signed, uh, but some people had, you know, other Twin Peaks memorabilia. 
and everybody took the opportunity. They, I think they said explicitly, like, you can ask Mark one question, but we want to keep the line moving. Uh, and I don't think a single person was just like, sign my stuff and got a, got a jet. Like, everybody was there because it was like a special night for, for Twin Peaks fans, and everybody took their time. And Mark was very nice. I, I got my very important question in. We know that uh, one of our favorite characters from the show, Gersten Hayward, is set to appear again in season three. <laughs> Alicia Witt confirmed on the cast list, and I, uh, I had to ask Mark, are we going to get a lot of Gersten? And <laughs> Mark said, all will be revealed. <laughs> no, he didn't actually say that to me. He said he couldn't, like, he couldn't say too much. Uh, but that we will see her again, which is like, oh, I've seen the cast list, my, my guy, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, he was very nice. And all will be revealed is something that he did say about a very different mystery that I'm sure we will touch on later. But so you didn't go to the, the signing that was literally a 15 minute walk away from your office? Oh, nope, did not <laughs> go to that. Powell's is a zoo, though. I can't imagine what it must have been like at Powell's because this was just like a like a pretty large, but like otherwise pretty laid back, just Barnes and Noble. Twin Peaks being the cult show that it is, Portland being the city invested in its own weirdness as it is, Powell's being the self-serious place that it is, I can only imagine what a nightmare that would have been. And honestly, I'm glad that I'd spared myself from it. Now... So, I know, no regrets. I know that we, we we don't want to spend too much time dilly-dallying here, but I must say, with regards to Powell's, um, I think the Strand bookstore in New York City might be more insufferable because I don't remember them selling uh, tote bags at Powell's that said, get lit on them. <laughs> get it? Do you get it? Oh, I do. <laughs> I'm trying to decide right now whether I would indulge that or not. And I'm really not sure. You're terrible. I know. <laughs> You're terrible for considering it. I was an English major. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the the beginning of the book, sort of setting aside the the, the meta narrative uh, running through it. Though, I mean, yes, there's an agent of the FBI identified only as TP at the start of the book who's going to be adding little comments and verifying some of the facts presented uh, in the dossier that was uncovered. And we start at the earliest history of Twin Peaks uh, <laughs> before it had the name, before it was a settled region. We start with Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Which is, um, I did not expect that. Uh, nope. I did not expect that we'd be going that far there back. Is but so much Lewis and Clark content. I okay started this when I was in New York. Yeah. By the way, you visit you visited me, uh, not to, to visit me. You came to see Oh Hello on Broadway. I did, and we talked about it, and then we didn't manage to record. Oh, no, boy. I. You know, I was on vacation, but I was I was trying. I did get like pretty far into this book, but I didn't finish it before I left. But I was just like on the subway, like flipping through being like, when does the Lewis and Clark content end? Because it's so long. Um, and it goes from there into more like American history, Chief Joseph, and really Masonic strings. Lodges. Yes. Freemasonry, big part of this book. 
really the two big themes that kind of emerge through all of the conspiracy theories that are kind of interwoven into this text X-Files style. The two big themes are Freemasonry and aliens. Mm-hmm. Right, right out the gate with, with the Lewis and Clark stuff, we do see something that is new for Mark Frost touching touching the Twin Peaks mythology, which is that he is acknowledging Fire Walk With Me. He was not very involved uh, with the film. He's not credited as a writer on the film. And so the idea of the ring, which uh, I can't remember if it's, I think it's Meriwether Lewis, finds the ring uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as he's traveling across America, that immediately comes up and situates this book as not yet temporally but in terms of uh how we the audience are tracing the narrative situates it's after fire walk with me and sort of the introduction of the ring into the black lodge mythology and the and the broader twin peaks mythology and this move to go this far back and start with an actually an actually a real occurrence where lewis and clark just there were no journal entries for a while and then it it's made to sound like Lewis maybe wandered into the Black Lodge and came back out to to, to use this real gap in the history to mm-hmm. immediately start implicating this stuff and saying this is a bigger thing than the story uh, presented in the show. Uh, after the show had already sort of taken its first steps to say this is a bigger story than just Laura Palmer mm-hmm. is interesting, especially since... The last thing was a story that brought it back to Laura Palmer. It was kind of getting you know the different end of the uh, the different end of the spectrum right out the gate. Mm-hmm. Did you feel frustrated just because it was a lot of this, or because of the the moves that were immediately being made with regards to uh, expanding the world of Twin Peaks? Uh, well, okay, so I feel like on the one hand, this format um is really well suited to mark frost style and we've talked a lot about what like a mark frost driven episode looks like and how he kind of writes these very plot driven episodes that maybe feel a little less true to what appeals to us about twin peaks but ultimately move the plot along in this really really essential way right that's something Mm -hmm. we've talked about before and this format even in the entries from the archivist even in the entries from the agent who's kind of um, annotating this dossier, like, it's very factual, and there are quips. They're not... I don't... I mean, the quips are pedestrian. There's not much in the way of metatextual humor. There's not much in the way of um, theme. There's not much in the way of character development, meta-commentary, and that's fine. Mm. That's not... I'm not trying to say that, like, that's missing from the book in some way. But instead, what we see are a lot of, like, very factual, plot-driven revelations. There's rarely a sentence that's not uh, meant to move the story along, Uh, whether that story is Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard or Nixon and Jackie Gleason. Like, it is a very fast-paced novel, and that not novel, but text, Um, and that's not to say that there isn't... The text definitely does take a stance on... The events that it's recapping, especially in the different points of view and in the different kind of found text that it incorporates. But ultimately, 
it is very invested in this like factual accounting that we know Mark Frost really likes to work in and that's kind of his strength, right? I think I would disagree on the on the assertion that the the sort of comments left by TP are pedestrian. Um they certainly don't have much in the way of character development. I think that's because, you know, so so much of what we're seeing here is based in fact. And I don't think Mark Frost is trying to and and, I, and when I say fact, let's clarify. I mean fact in terms of conspiracy theory uh, structures related to real, actually verifiable events, or at least people coming forward and saying, you know, I saw this abduction, or the way Jack Parsons was treated, the what we know about L. Ron Hubbard, what we know about Nixon's paranoia, like fact in terms of like historical fiction with the heavy right. dosing of conspiracy theory. I'm not saying I believe that Jackie Gleason saw a fucking extraterrestrial or maybe he did that'd be funny the quips feel like mark frost's especially when the character tp will kind of cut in and talk about like a favorite film uh from Mm -hmm. the time which is like the the most we get in terms of character development is like we know that this person likes movies but it really Mm -hmm. feels to me like oh this is mark frost's little whirlwind tour of american conspiracy theory and i don't think that He's trying to knit a a cohesive narrative out of that for the sake of advocating a grand American conspiracy theory. I don't think he buys this stuff. I think he finds it fascinating. And during some of the mo- moments that really move, whether or not they're incorporating the Twin Peaks mythology, whether or not, you know, we're seeing the ring somewhere or a place is being alluded to as maybe being, an, you know, akin to or an entry a parallel entry to the lodges when that stuff's even not there, when it's going through uh, laying out these, these moments in history and these conspiracy theories, it really moves. I don't feel like it ever uh, outside of maybe the first couple pages when you're getting used to, Oh, this isn't going to be all about the characters I love. I don't think it ever really drags too much at a point. It is, it is really pacey. I don't know. It's, it definitely, I wouldn't call it a novel. I, you're the formal, uh, formally trained uh, English major here. It's not a novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is what is lacking for this to to not be a novel? Is it kind of the lack of like outside of Dougie, the story of Dougie, any kind of real through line? Yeah, I just think it's it doesn't have like a novel doesn't have to have a a through line necessarily, uh, but. Generally, you expect to see some kind of unifying aspect, whether that's a character or whether that's a theme. Um, I mean, you could argue like the archivist or TP, but I don't really see that. And I think obviously there are other uh, true novels that use this form and particularly use endnotes and annotations to um, create a character that's sort of outside the bounds of the like quote-unquote story or novel but is like created and developed within the text and uh, having seen effective uses of that in infinite jest which i know we have differing opinions about (laughs) but also in pale fire by vladimir nabokov um which was written about 50 years earlier um i just think that there's more that can be done with the form and it feels like it felt like i was reading a collection of wikipedia entries (laughs) Hmm. Which is fine, and like I love yeah. going down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, but that's very much how it felt to me. 
Okay. I mean, I think that, yeah, I think some of the fun of this is maybe I could sum it up as it's like you're going down a Wikipedia rabbit hole with Mark Frost. That's a good way to put it. And you're just kind of and you're just kind of there crossing your fingers under the table, hoping that he's going to let some Twin Peaks knowledge spill out accidentally as he's excitedly telling you about like the Hanford nuclear site or Roswell, New Mexico. I mean, it really is also, though, reminiscent of the X-Files in the way that the X-Files tried to unite all of. um, Sure. I mean, really the same events uh, under one. Uh, unified conspiracy theory again revolving around aliens i think there's a playfulness here though that i mean because it's doing this in the space of a novel uh that is is kind of lacking it doesn't seem like it really wants to commit and we'll get into that later but i did want to jut in there i'm not going to let this pass i don't think we've actually talked about infinite jest and this is not about to become the whole show but just (laughs) thumbs up thumbs down are you thumbs up uh, okay, I haven't read Infinite Jest in many, many years. Okay. But I think I am. I think I am. I would like to read it again and like re-verify my opinion, but I think I am. Okay, well, uh, just listeners, if you want to know how I feel about it, wait wait for the, the plugs at the end of the show. I think that, uh, yeah, there, there's something to be said for uh, whether or not you want to just call it a novel. It doesn't move like one. Uh, I think it's a breezy and... I'll say now overall enjoyable read, but there are moments that are uh, that that don't shine like the rest kind of kind of make you scratch your head. And that's not even getting into the continuity issues. I mean, it's got a head scratching structure because we've been talking about TP, but of course, this isn't a dossier assembled by the archivist, as you mentioned, who's this other character who early on uh, were kind of prodded to think like, oh, this must have been assembled by someone we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the show's mythology, from the from the show's events, uh, so we've got these two layers, these two different overlapping voices, and and then we have original documents as well, both from historical figures like Mary Weather Lewis and uh, Cooper uh, uh, Hawk, different people in and around. At, at certain well. points, we're reading. Uh, one document with the archivist's comments on it and then with TP's comments on it. Uh, like, it gets it gets uh, pretty complicated at points. Um, and again, I don't think it ever gets too, too bogged down in that to the point where you're just like, what the what the hell am I reading? But yeah, it's, a, it's definitely I mean, a weird structure. And the one thing I would say is, like, we'll say it now, I don't think the mystery of the archivist was, uh, like, by the time I got to the reveal... Uh, I was like, yeah, okay. I wasn't racing to get there to figure out who it was. If anything, I was racing to get there to be like, I know I'm right. Like, I know who Mm -hmm. this is. There's only one person. It's not going to be Bobby. It's not going to be Mike, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's Garland, uh, Major Briggs. And like, duh. Uh. Yeah, that that I I really, really like that choice, especially because we're not going to see Major Briggs um, in the third season. Yeah, it is a good way to have another Briggs contribution that, you know, doesn't have to be um, Betty or Bobby sort of, you know, relaying a message from the the now past Major Briggs. But yeah, um, I, I like it for that reason. But it's just like, there's only one guy. And he uses the only other possible guy, Dougie, to invent basically a character out of whole cloth that can actually do all the things that we know Briggs wouldn't have been able to. So... Mm-hmm. I wasn't 
let down in a plot sense because I went through the book thinking that the whole way and still enjoyed it. But I do think that um, maybe it was outside outside of paying respect a wasted opportunity. I don't know. Is that is that fair? Um, I mean, potentially. Again, like I just don't think there's a lot of character development going on in this text. And that's not to the detriment. Again, it's like 100%, I think, playing into like Mark Frost strengths, but thinking about, you know, Doug Milford as the major character throughout this text, there's this moment where Doug Milford goes from kind of like uh, the town drunk to becoming, you know, enlisting in the Navy or the Army, I don't remember which, and then kind of being recruited for these special projects and like that could have been a really good opportunity for like introspective character development but I think that's really glossed over and you just kind of he just becomes this character that doesn't really resemble the Doug Milford that we knew and I think that Mark Frost goes to some lengths to kind of make what we knew of Doug Milford fit this Fox Mulder archetype uh, that's kind of the active agent throughout mm. this whole text. Yeah, the, the the character turn from town drunk to man of mystery is is pretty abrupt. Uh, and I think some of this, like having listened to the clips of the audiobook when when Mark played them at the event, I have to wonder if in some way he imagined this book being read aloud or you know if if part of the reason to frame it in in such a diverse uh selection of of you know uh, found texts and and transcripts and things was to try and evoke that kind of sense for the reader because a lot did come through in hearing hearing Dougie's voice and another thing you lose over a traditional novel with narration and and with description in this format is you don't, you know, you don't get the 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 tone of voice that that a line is delivered in uh, when it's just right. name colon transcripted text, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, over and over. And so, without that, you just have kind of the events to to go on. And yeah, there's there's a lot that's like there's we now know so much more about Doug Milford, but it's still like fairly Swiss cheese, especially in the early days. He's abducted on a scouts trip. And then mm-hmm. that like ruins his life. And then he manages to piece himself up together enough to go to the army. Not an unbelievable turn there. Uh, but then soon after that, he stumbles upon the Roswell crash, uh, mm-hmm. like whoops. And is from that point on, just like pulled into this world on the, on the basis of, he says he saw this thing and they believe him. Uh, presumably because they could verify what he said, but they believe him. They're like, okay, now go around and discredit and potentially threaten these other people. Like Mm -hmm. suddenly you're like, wait, why this guy? Why this guy? Let alone why this guy who, when he's in his eighties is running the town newspaper and a lech, like doesn't seem very serious at all. Like that's some deep cover uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for Dougie Milford. Yeah. I mean, does it work ultimately sure but to get back to this idea about answers and like what this book provides and like or what this text is trying to do it 
feels very much like a world building exercise. And I think part of the issue that I took with it, and we're definitely going to talk about this more when we talk about um, inconsistencies. But part of the issue I took was it explains so many things that I don't think needed to be explained. And I think in some instances kind of took away sort of the the magic of like the ambiguity of Twin Peaks. Like I loved when the series originally was kind of framing itself as a supernatural, fantastic mystery. And then, you know, Project Blue Book was introduced and we found out that Major Briggs was receiving um, those signals uh, from, not from space, but as part of this like kind of extraterrestrial monitoring program. Like, I love that twist, and I love that all of those possibilities are still in the air when the series ended, even though in some ways the, you know, purview was kind of narrowing. But I think explicitly, you know, tying the mysteries of Twin Peaks to um, alien mythology and explicitly to um, Freemasonry, I don't know, it, it takes away a little bit of the magic for me. And I would have loved to have discovered that uh, more organically through the course of the series than just kind of being introduced to it through Dougie Milford at Roswell. Sure. I I do think, and I think it's a point worth, you know, uh, worth questioning to, to the degree to which it does this. I do think that the book leaves it open-ended. For all it does to explain these these strange things going on that we see in the show and and tie them to uh alien conspiracy theories and the like uh it doesn't reach any hard conclusions and it doubles back on some of the same points that we see in the show where they're like actually the transmission didn't come from space we're not sure if this is aliens they could very well have been here long before us or have always mm-hmm. existed alongside us in another plane and you know, and, and you know there, there's some narration from the archivist that you know kind of circles around this point of like does it really matter what it is? I, the thing is it does it does these same things that the show does, but you you get these heavy doses of of potential explanations. Yeah, it focuses so much on Roswell and famous abductions and Nixon and. Doug Milford uh, meeting an extraterrestrial being as much as the text tries to dial itself back. It feels very explicit given the fact that, you know, of the, I mean, the number of pages fluctuate in an ebook, so I can't really give you a good idea, but Mm -hmm. uh, you know, depending on how I hold my tablet, you know, it's 400 or 500 pages, you know, at least two thirds of it, I think are dedicated to like alien conspiracy theories. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that for for me reading that, I didn't walk away going like, I didn't walk away in one sense going, ugh, I can't believe I just read that much about you know Roswell and 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 the surrounding mystery. Nor did I walk away going, ugh, I can't believe that Twin Peaks was just about aliens the whole time. Uh, now maybe I have a high tolerance for this kind of thing, um, but I I don't think that that's the side that the book ultimately comes down on. But what I wanted to say was it might leave the door open for other possibilities, but it doesn't really do much to suggest what else could be going on, which is one route, nor does it give enough in terms of, or for me, I would say personally, in terms of a resolution 
on the does it matter point. Like, does it matter if these are aliens? Uh, Mm -hmm. Perhaps not because, and then there's nothing after the because. Like, Mm -hmm. the only because we have is if you're a fan of the show, you know that the from the symbolism to the strong characters to the uh, just surreal uh, events and, and, and repetition, like all the things that stylistically come together that we think of as Twin Peaks are like why this matters uh, or mm-hmm. why the facts of what's going on don't matter because it's still riveting to see this story play out. Uh, without you know these definite answers or without having to like jump up and down and scream it's aliens but it doesn't do enough to to bring me back to that point i would say um which is weird because uh i was just thinking about this and i i tweeted this out from our account the other day uh garland has one of the best scenes in the show when he's speaking to bobby at the double r about the dream he has and you could read all sorts of factual, like, uh, alien uh, things or, or parallel reality things into that dream or anything you like. You certainly can, but it's the delivery of that speech. It's the impact of that speech that matters, um, mm-hmm. not anything you might try to, like, pull out of its content. And the balance is just not here, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. It just, like... I don't know. I and yeah. that's that might make it sound like I'm disappointed overall, and I'm not. Uh, I'm glad I bought this book. It's a very well put together book. It's an entertaining read, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense either. But yes, it's like it is an extension. Uh, if anything, it's if anything, it's like a really valuable document to have in terms of a deep dive into how Mark Frost in his head not only conceptualizes Twin Peaks, I think that's a simplistic take. I don't think that this is all he thinks about with regards to the show. I think this is how he might think of his own contributions to the show. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it might be more self-conscious and self-aware than that. And for that reason, it's good. But then for the reasons where you're just like, I don't like the episodes that he's more heavily involved with than the episodes that say uh, Engels and Peyton or, or Lynch were more heavily involved in is because his style is distinct and it doesn't always hit on all cylinders that we know the show is at its best with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Where, where, where do you want to go from here? Cause we can get, dive a little bit more into the more modern conspiracy theory things like L. Ron Hubbard and how weird it was that the book decided to go there. Or we could, you know, go over those things in brief and, and, and move on to to show relevant stuff. Yeah. Let's just catalog the conspiracy theories maybe. I do want to talk about L. Ron Hubbard just a little bit because that was quite the surprise. I don't know. I'm on I'm on a Scientology kick because I'm always on a Scientology kick. Um it it's a fascinating institution that does harm to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fascinating because former members are finally speaking out. Um, there's a lot of really great, con- like, I don't, not just content, but like documentaries available out there now. The fictionalized kind of dramatization of Scientology called The Master, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's movie. That's great. Um, the comedian Andy Daly did 
two episodes of the Dead Authors podcast as L. Ron Hubbard, and that's like fantastic content <laughs> as well. Um, hashtag it's content. Like, it's this hashtag content. Um, I mean, it's it's so fascinating. So to be like flipping through and being like, okay, where are we going with this? And then to see a picture of L. Ron Hubbard was so startling to me. I don't know. It felt like Mark Frost had reached into my subconscious. That was the part that I was like, whoa, this this is so, suddenly you were riveted. Like, where's he going to go Little with this? Uncanny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. I mean, the the Jack Parsons, JPL, L. Ron Hubbard stuff, the, the the series of events that led to the formation of Scientology, as far as we know. Uh, this is the first time, you know, I, I'm I'm someone who who keeps a distance from Scientology. I mean. At around the time that there were those anonymous protests, however many years ago now, what was that, 2007, uh, of Scientology? Like, that was their first big, you know, target mm-hmm. uh, when they weren't shady shady international hackers and more just, like, some 4chan nerds and masks. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I got the primer on the real Scientology and, and the fucked up shit. But I'm, I've never been much of a, a true crimes person, uh, so I've also never like cared much more uh to 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 go into it so it's actually fascinating can i pitch this to you i mean pitch pitch it to the listeners because i'm i can tell you i'm probably not gonna do it well okay it's really interesting because basically at the beginning of the 2000s the bbc produced this series of documentaries called scientology and me on bbc panorama and basically in the first one that they did you can see their production being hounded by these high-level um, Scientology officials. Mike Rinder is one of them. Um, and by the time they produced their follow-up, many of those same people who were showing up at their hotels, uh, following them with cameras, harassing them on the streets, have actually left the church and are then being interviewed about why they left the church. Um, and those people, Mike Rinder, Marty Rathburn have been interviewed by the BBC. They appeared in Going Clear, uh, Leah Remini's uh, ongoing documentary series on A&E, Louis Theroux's Scientology and Me movie, uh, or not Scientology and Me, my Scientology movie, which was also fascinating. Um, Hmm. And what, like, used to be this really impenetrable force is cracking. And if you kind of follow the chronology, it's incredible because... At the beginning of the 21st century, it was kind of viewed as, you know, invaluable and really impossible to um, kind of get in there because production companies, uh, networks wouldn't pick up these projects because of the fear that big names like Tom Cruise and John Travolta and Chrissy Alley uh, would not work with them if they produced a documentary that was critical of Scientology. Um, So this is really the first time that... I don't know. All of this is kind of coming to light. And it's interesting to see these real people and the journey that they have gone on in the last decade. Yeah. I mean, w- one could also make the argument that maybe all, all all that it really needed was a new crop of celebrities who were aware of Scientology being a scam and uh, a, 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 a like malicious power cult to kind of come into their own and be like, I'm not going to get involved with that. And then for names like John Travolta and Christy Alley to suddenly no longer be relevant to a studio's bottom line 
but maybe that's a little bit of a pessimistic take on it. Yeah, I think that's a little oversimplistic. I will say, along those lines, though, it's not as bold of a move for Mark Frost to be like, I'm going to put a big middle finger up in the sky towards Scientology in 2016 as it would have been in 2006 uh, yeah. or earlier. So, and um, and this is a this is a deep cut. The Jack Parsons, like L. Ron Hubbard stuff. Um, L. Ron Hubbard is really fascinating. You you need to cut out some of this Scientology stuff. I was literally <laughs> watching Scientology stuff yesterday, so I'm like really fired up on Scientology, but. Um, I mean, Mark Frost has really done his research and what he's kind of going over here, uh, with Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard. This is really like a deep cut and a lot of people, um, a lot of available resources don't really get this deep into L. Ron Hubbard's personal life predating Scientology. This is Mm -hmm. when he was quote unquote, breaking up occultism in America. Yeah. At the behest of the CIA. Look, there's no more perfect origin story for than a a uh, creepy demagogue than to pitch themselves as totally against what they later come to embody. Sounds like nobody I know. Um. <laughs> but uh, the other big conspiracy theories that this is sort of uh, bookended by are the murder of Meriwether Lewis. Mm-hmm who was assumed to have committed suicide. Later, a uh, reevaluation of the events surrounding his death uh, suggests differently. Um, events surrounding the life of Chief Joseph, uh, <laughs> the history of Masonic lodges and Freemasonry in the United States, Roswell, as we said, Area mm-hmm. 51, um, the assassination of JFK, Jack Parsons, as we said, Richard Nixon, um, and did Jackie not Gleason. Nixon to be as uh, big of a character in this book, but of all the presidents he in the in the a... time span, I'm glad it was Nixon and not Reagan. You know, uh, he that we had and to read Doug a bunch Milford about. were the best of friends, from what I can they were, see. They were tight. They were very tight. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like I also thought the Entertainer was going to be revealed to be Elvis. The whole yeah. time I was reading and they had like blocked out the name, I really thought it was going to be Elvis. Yeah, I think I think he might have made the description of the guy a little uh, vague there intentionally to, to bait people who didn't know this thing about Jackie Gleason legitimately claiming to have seen extraterrestrials. That is real. I didn't uh, know that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's that's another thing you know, like ripped from the headlines. Jackie Gleason said, Nixon showed me ETs. Um uh, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's trying to because I, th- I think what it is for us is that like we think Nixon and the celebrity and there's that iconic photo of him standing in the Oval Office with Elvis. So that might right. it might just be both of us being set off by that. Um, right. And all these things, including the 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 UFO sightings and the the salvage recoveries and so forth, are uh, kind of linked around the ring because. With Lewis, we start with the ring, and then later on we see Nixon fondling the ring. Um, and on that point, I do, I do want to say the illustration, the one illustration we have of the ring is a little odd because it's the owl cave symbol, but then there's like an extra line on it, uh, on the symbol. 
this is something I don't know if this is meta meta textual at this point, but remember in the show when Cooper draws the the owl cave symbol intersecting with mm-hmm. the, the 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 branding on the the log lady, and it's mm-hmm. it doesn't look like a combination of the two at all. It just looks like a different mm-hmm. triangle centric yep. thing. And on the spine of this book, I'll show you now. It's also depicted as the spine of the dossier uh, in yes. the book. It's like another variation on that. Um, like, I don't know if it's a joke at this point that no one can agree on what these symbols are or <laughs> if that's supposed to tip us off to something about there either being multiple rings or this being, you know, sort of a different instance of the ring uh, mm-hmm. in a certain sense. So, but that's that's kind of the through line is that somehow, presumably from Meriwether Lewis down to Richard Nixon... And then maybe back to the town of Twin Peaks uh, is the Owl Cave ring. So Honestly, you know what I'd like to see? Because that symbol is all about the triangle, which is assumed to be the symbol of the Illuminati. Mm -hmm. Bring it all the way home in 2016. I want Jay-Z and Beyonce to be implicated in this series of conspiracies they are they are part of the has yet unannounced extra cast list (laughs) david lynch pulled out all the stops jay-z is doing transcendental meditation every day now (laughs) with um uh yeah anyway i mean there's still time we don't know when this series is coming out so yeah they could be shooting their scenes right now (laughs) They, they could be they could be so let's talk about Let's talk about the, uh, I guess we'll save continuity errors for last. We should talk about the uh, the big re- revelations for the series and the smaller revelations, because I feel like the smaller ones are what kind of tip us into, wait a minute, is that what happened to the yeah. show? So let's let's get the big one out of the way. Who's, mm-hmm. or, or big ones, plural, who's living, who's dead post, post-finale? We know Audrey lives, mm-hmm. and we know that she reconciles with her father. Um, <clears throat> we know Catherine sells the mill uh, and its surrounding property to Ben after the death of her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Pete Pete passes away. Also, Andrew Packard. Also, Dale Mibbler, uh, the very I slow was kind of expecting more of Dell. Uh, oh yeah, sorry, Dell Mibbler. Yeah, um, nope. Or Dill, I don't know. I was expecting more of him in this book. Yeah, I think I said Dale earlier. Uh, Speaking of Dale, Cooper, at some point, uh, either before the finale or after, uh, maybe this is around the time when Harry is yelling a lot, very drunkenly, uh, (laughs) assembles a bookhouse dossier on Josie, uh, which, given that the bookhouse has a lending library that goes into the personal lives of the townsfolk of Twin Peaks that seems to be very publicly accessible. I don't know <laughs> if a criminal dossier with Interpol files is the best idea. Um, but, yeah, you know. Perhaps not. Um, Hank is dead. <laughs> he dies in prison. And some people are notably absent from the novel, or from the text, I keep saying novel, but it's not a novel, and I stand firm on that. That's that's your assertion. Let's talk about these these little smaller character pieces then, because because the the other the big stuff that we just covered will will come back up with regards to what's not so right. Um, 
a lot of a lot of Dr. Jacoby in this book and Dr. Jacoby's brother. I think one of the uh, most effective ideas of like playing with genre and playing with like different forms of found text was actually the inclusion of Dr. Jacoby's version of the doors of perception. I think that was really uh, one of the texts where I could, you know, discern like a distinct voice that felt really unique to Dr. Jacoby. Um, it definitely helped that I have read the doors of perception. Um, but that was a nice touch. Now, when and we also you, find out. When did you do that? <laughs> When did I read The Doors of Perception? Yeah. <laughs> I was 14. <laughs> wow. 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. Um, we also find out um, about Dr. Jacoby's brother, Robert Jacoby, former editor of the Twin Peaks Gazette. Um, Dr. Jacoby returns from Hawaii to care for his brother, uh, who passes away prior to the events of the series. Mm-hmm. We also find out that he loses his medical license after the events of the series. Yeah, well, given the timing, uh, if you're a stickler for dates, it sounds like it happens during the events of the series and that he immediately picks up and leaves town, uh, which we know doesn't quite play out that way. But... We'll say if you ignore the dates, yeah, he loses his medical license and returns to Hawaii. Um, and uh, we were played at the at the reading a clip from the audiobook uh, narrated by Russ Tamblin. And I just want to say before we move on, like, yeah, I agree that the uh, even though I haven't read uh, the the sort of the text it was taking off on, I think the stuff that we get from Jacoby himself in this book sounds like Jacoby in a way that maybe say uh sheriff hawk or sorry deputy hawk deputy hawk uh yeah okay his account of the story of ed and norma doesn't really sound like hawk because no nope. wasn't allowed to swear so much on abc or be remotely so crude uh which actually i do kind of dig also that he's got a different writing voice but i mean if you want to talk about reading something that sounds like the character, Jacoby's stuff sounds a lot more like Jacoby than, say, Audrey's letter to her dad does, uh, which sticks out to me as one that does not... I can't even, to myself, like, reading it, picture Sherilyn Fenn's voice in it, but it also helps that Russ Tamblin narrates it and gives that... um, I think Jacoby is one of the performances that consistently in the past I've underappreciated in Twin Peaks, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm glad we'll be seeing more of him. For sure. Um, I definitely want to talk about uh, Deputy Hawk's, I don't know, expose, manifesto on the history of Ed and Norma <laughs> that he just conveniently wrote up and then left in the bookhouse boys' possessions. I don't know. Um, which also gets into more of the town history mythology. Um, some additional revelations include the... Packard Martell family feud, um, Montague Capulet style. <laughs> yeah, it extends back a couple of generations and then has that uh has that sort of that, that Romeo and Juliet uh that vibe to it. Um there is a point at which the I believe it's the uh archivist or, or whoever's writing at that point it's whoever's writing at that point, uh makes a note, you know, using metaphor. 
um, uh, to say that uh, Catherine plays chess while Pete plays checkers. And it's like, come on, like, don't sell Pete short. <laughs> He's actually very good at chess. At the very least, do yeah. him the service of not <laughs> insulting him with that particular turn of phrase. OK, he is very good at chess. I'm not, say, I'm not saying like I think that's one a co- incon- few not saying it's an inconsistency. Yeah, I'm saying it's it's like give Pete the respect he deserves, okay? That's all. Um, Andrew Packard, though, speaking of, also has an extraterrestrial encounter uh, at a younger age. And so do uh, the log lady, Margaret Lanterman, and mm-hmm. interestingly enough, Carl Rod, uh, portrayed by Harry Dean Stanton in Fire Walk With Me. That's the first time... Mark Frost, to my knowledge, has touched on that character at all. Um, yeah. And to say that, you know, he went to the same school as the log lady and was involved in the same event. Um, I mean, we talked about the uh, the idea of Deer Meadow being a kind of inversion of Twin Peaks in that episode. And then that's more clearly saying, like, maybe consider, if not, like, Carl Rod is the inversion of the log lady. Like, mm, probably not. But it does draw a connection between those two that I think mm-hmm. uh, I was excited to see both in like a plotty sense of just like, oh, there's a there's a connection here. And also in the sense that it's just like, I I really dig Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, and to see that small, great character linked to a character as iconic as the log lady, uh, it feels right for me because uh, mm-hmm. he has a, a really good impact in the film. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, of course, we get uh, uh, more of the Milford brothers, and this is this will be a good way to get into the continuity errors, and, and then and then we'll maybe double back to the other things. But we get Dougie Milford's whole past, and then we get uh, his his death again, mm-hmm. and we of course need to talk about Lana, aka the widow Milford, aka the Mido. Wilford. Did I do Wilford. that twice? Did I say widow? No, I think you said I think you said widow Milford. Yeah. And then middle Wilford. I they really start to sound the same. They really yeah, it's really <laughs> it does a number on your brain. Anyway, the 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 middle Wilford will go with uh it's because Wilford sounds like a more sensible name than Milford does, so as soon as it comes it out of really your mouth does. you think you think, wait, no, I just said it right, didn't I? Uh <laughs> So, That's exactly what it is. So the middle Wilford. The archivist has a line where he suspects that because of Dougie's crazy conspiracy theory linked past that he's been let in on, uh, I should say at this point, is Garland is saying this, that maybe Lana was a spy sent to kill yes. Dougie Milford. Now, my question for you is, is the thought of Lana being a spy, does that in any way sort of help you look past how grown worthy the oh my god she's so sexy none of us can take our eyes off of her plotline does it in any way help where you're just like she is playing them and she's like some kind of hypersexual black widow uh uh marvel figure like does that help at all? I'm saying for me, no, it doesn't. But no. <laughs> it's clear. I think it's clearly trying to gesture towards that. The question for yourself. I, I, um, I, I actually think it's interesting that there are some similarities. 
I don't even necessarily want to say drawn because I really don't think the text is drawing this explicit connection. But I do think that there are parallels between um, Josie and Lana that kind of only um, become salient in these sort of like like Cooper's examination of Josie and her past mm. and the archivist's examination of Lana's past, which is just to say that like they're not who they say they are. They're actually much older women who are kind of playing this like uh, infantilized femme fatale role uh, who kind of have this femme fatale black widow effect on the men of Twin Peaks. I think that's really interesting. Mm. Um I, think I it's certainly gonna be think revealed. that Josie is more well-written than Lana. And <laughs> yeah, I think that's like probably an underutilized avenue to justify uh, that character. I loved uh, in the writing when Garland is saying like, oh, you know, Dougie didn't think that she was the love of his life, but he knew that she would probably be the last. And it's just like, that wasn't really present in the series, but now that you've built him up so much, of course you have to justify that, Mark Ross. Yeah, of course you have to like make that 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 connection there. Um yeah, I think it's gonna be revealed that every beautiful woman in Twin Peaks is actually a double agent. Uh I or would a secret love that. A, a secret agent and is there just to uh dispatch of a man. Um I I don't know. Yeah, drawing the Josie comparison there, it just feels like it's it you have to have that when you do that to Dougie Milford's character. You have to yeah. alter Lana. And then he goes a step further and and indicates that Lana goes on to date Donald Trump uh, <laughs> before settling down and marrying a uh, a hedge fund manager. And I just have to ask, Mark, if you're listening, do you think this joke is funnier now or less funny? <laughs> What do you think now, Mark? Now not, in this I'm not pointing fingers moment. here. I'm just I'm I'm asking sincerely, do you think that this joke is like even more worth it now or do you wish that you could just forget about everything? Um ever. Will, everything ever. Will the second edition of this book have any reference of Donald Trump? Better will question. Will it be scrubbed? Um You know, I read I read this book the other day, and it was complete lies, complete lies. Nixon never saw aliens sad. Um, <laughs> but I have. <laughs> and I'm like a very good reader. Huge. I'm like a very good reader. <laughs> I'm a real smart guy. I don't need intelligence briefings. I have seen aliens. I have, I have seen aliens. I mean, the movie, James Cameron, wonderful filmmaker, wonderful filmmaker. Um, <laughs> right. Let's talk about the other big change to Lana that will then launch us into what I think has been the most intriguing and potentially infuriating thing for really big Twin Peaks fans, especially the continuity buffs among them, which is the blatant it. the blatant contradictions uh, that are at play in this book. Because first off, it says that Lana won the Miss Twin Peaks pageant when we know that... Annie Blackburn won the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. And what's that? There's no mention of Annie Blackburn whatsoever in this book. You know who else is not mentioned? Although this is not in any way a continuity or, or a contradiction. Donna and James. 
Uh, James is mentioned. You forget that James is mentioned in James the backstory of Ed's Ed and Norma. Nephew. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's uh, true. But okay. Donna, like, I think Doc Hayward Scrub. gets a shout out, but <laughs> Donna does not. Donna but can I'm do no dirty so in this book. Thrilled. I'm so thrilled that we're going to get Gersten. I want Gersten yes. to ascend to her rightful place in the Hayward family. <laughs> She's the only, if I recall correctly, she's the only returning Hayward sibling. I don't, <laughs> I don't think, uh, I think it's, I th- well, is, is Deschanel confirmed? Are we going to see mom and dad Hayward or just Doc Hayward? I'm not sure. I don't know if mom Hayward is confirmed. Well, dang. Uh, well, if she's, well, if she's not, then they're not going to do then they oh then they oh, probably boy. won't do the Ben Donna paternity drama. You know what? I kind Honestly, of wanna... <laughs> you want that tied there's up? There's a part of there's a part of me that like wants to see where they were going with it. I don't know that I want well, it in season three at all. I just want David Lynch to get on a podcast like perhaps ours and just you know what were you thinking? What was the end game for that going to be? <sighs> Did you know where you were going the, with that? The last thing I want David Lynch to talk about if we were able to get him on this show would be a plot line that's developed in the back half of season two and then left I mean, to wither. Fair enough. But who's um, going to ask the important questions besides us? L- look, Donna has done us dirty because Donna got us off track here vis-a-vis the complete erasure of Annie Blackburn. We have more important parental drama, and it comes down to the drama of Norma's mom in Hawk's history of Twin Peaks has a different name, and she's dead. She's not M.T. Wentz, a.k.a. Vivian Niles, uh, the really mean uh, food critic who marries a criminal. No, her name is Ilsa, and she dies. And it doesn't seem like Norma even has a sister. Yeah, she used to um, uh, own, manage the double R mm-hmm. in this version of history, which is in quite contrast to M.T. Wentz and her whole deal. Yeah, I remember I was reading that section and it took me a second to get to the point where I was like, uh, Ilsa, uh, I think it was actually the part where I was like, owns the double R where I was like, alarm bells i was like no like her mom uh is the food crit wait a minute her mom also isn't dead and her name is vivian uh and suddenly i was like what the hell am i reading what is going on here and of all the continuity errors we're about to cover let's just get this out of the way first this is the one that mark frost was cornered on and he said all will be revealed and my question is okay will it (laughs) No. And I'm not and I'm not super worried. I don't want to hold his feet to the fire here and be like, you gotta resolve all this. In fact, I really want as little time in the show spent working to resolve these uh inconsistencies rather than like explore whatever else is interesting about what's responsible for these inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. Um if we're just to jump the gun and get it out there so we can kind of talk in these terms. If we're talking about a different timeline or something, yeah. I'm more interested in the the what else and why of that than the explanation for these little 
these little things that we can just like clearly see don't line up in the book. Yeah, I mean that's fair. Ed's time in Vietnam is 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 touched on, uh, and it's showed that when Ed went to Vietnam, he wanted to maintain the relationship with Norma, um, and those letters never arrived thanks to Hank's meddling. Uh, but also importantly, Hawk seems to indicate that before the show, shortly before the events of Twin Peaks, Ed basically uh, confronts Norma about the letters in the double R in public, in front of people, in front of Hawk, and they basically <laughs> rekindle their love right there in public. And so welcome to a segment that you haven't heard in months because we haven't made an episode in months. Welcome at last to Drape Runner Corner, the secret history of Twin Peaks edition. Poor, poor Nadine. This completely recontextualizes Nadine's arc in the show because at this point, we should know that Nadine definitely knows about Ed and Norma because... Ed basically blabbed his heart to the whole town. You don't even need to read his face to know it. He he said it, and basically, what the town has that passes for a public forum. Um, and I'm just so gosh dang upset about this for Nadine's sake. Mm-hmm. She she got her eye shot out. She was forgiving, and she thought that her husband was a good man who would would stick by her through thick and thin and, and they would live happily ever after and then you know just because a guy uh, you know fucks around with the mail system uh, and your husband finds out he's gonna go back to his high school sweetheart no 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 it's it's really upsetting to me how, how did you feel did you did you cry I welled up <laughs> Um, this was actually one of the sections of the book that when I'm talking about, like, Mark Frost being too explicit in the answers that he gives, this is one of them that bothered me, not just because of the continuity errors that we're talking about, but first of all, first of all, who cares? (laughs) Um, what was important to know for the show? (laughs) I mean, like, who cares how, who cares how? Ed and Norma got together. Who cares how they spent their interim years? Like, what we need to know when the show starts is that they have rekindled some kind of relationship. It's kind of ambivalent where they are with it. That unfolds over the course of the show. This backstory is, it's too much. It takes away kind of, like, I think, like, the fun and kind of the mystery of, like, their chemistry and their relationship and the way it was written Um, And kind of the Mm. multiplicity of interpretations that were available. And obviously that's not a huge point of the show by any means. And that's not like where I derive like my pleasure in watching the show from. But I think this is like a microcosm of like such an exposition dump that I didn't ever want. I was like their chemistry was so great and spoke for itself in such a way that I didn't need this backstory and this backstory I think is like overly complicated uh beautiful performances Mm. okay okay I mean I still think you're a monster for not having at least a little bit of sympathy for uh Nadine in this situation but you know 
I mean, Whatever. I didn't say I um, didn't have sympathy for Nadine, but okay. Well, I mean, you basically uh, basically indicated it by I said not really, you know, by omission, right? Yeah, by omission, exactly, exactly. But they shake up they shake up Nadine's character in a couple of other ways too. Uh, yeah, her her maiden name is different, uh, which is. I mean, so some of these are like real nitpicky, right? Dates not lining up, maiden names of characters being different. So not even their like regular canon last name. The one that will be a one-off line in an episode. Uh, age discrepancies, which also like age discrepancies and date discrepancies. They had these back with the show uh, and the other extraneous materials. Like this has been a thing and that's not at all something I personally care much about, um, you know, it's, it is what it is. Uh, then there are choices, uh, like the, like I saw people online speculating, like I, and, and, and getting real mad and getting mad at Mark Frost, which I think was un, un, unwarranted, uh, and, and overreactionary to be like, I can't believe he forgot about Vivian. I can't believe you forgot about Norma's mother. And it's like, yo, hold up. There's no Annie. Everything remotely near <laughs> Annie is like very different. Like there's something going on. It's a pretty, it's like basically painting it on the wall in big red letters. Uh, same with, uh, same with this thing, which, uh, really stuck out to me when I was reading, uh, which was uh, what happens in the latter half of season two with Ben and Audrey Horn. Um, We've had to talk way too long, months and months ago now, probably in the year 2015 now, uh, about the miserable Ben Civil War (laughs) storyline. Oh, God. The the step too far in terms of what's fun and playful and what's just not believable and kind of cringeworthy. Um, but by Jacoby's account, uh, in the context of this book, in the, in the continuity of this book, Ben surrenders and that's how he snaps out of it. He does not win the civil war for the South. He surrenders. And, we also know that that's a complete contradiction. Likewise, why is Audrey at the bank, Ashley? Well, if this book is to be believed, she uh, is at odds with her father regarding the development of the Ghostwood Estates. Exactly. When we go through this whole arc of the Civil War thing and Audrey being there to help her father and then starting to take control uh, in the business and... Ben starts wearing those fucking great Fila jackets. Oh, the best fashion. Uh, uh, and eating those very giant carrots. <laughs> yes, stashing giant carrots in his Fila jackets. Just the best shit. We have to deal with Audrey's uh, very lusciously lipped love interest in Billy Zane. Uh, <laughs> and the the pine weasel which is just a way to give us even more Dick Tremaine. We have to do all of that, but the light that comes out of it is this sense that the Audrey-Ben dynamic has changed 
not for the better necessarily, and it's not like Ben. It's not even remotely like Ben's been absolved of his sins, but Ben is now working against Catherine in a different way and in a way that is uh, edging towards something you can root for more. Uh, and Audrey gets to be an active player. We even get to see Audrey be, uh, bring um, Bobby in, which leads to a great scene or two. And this says, no, Ben at this point was still scheming. Audrey was feeling uh, powerless in the face of this and then goes and locks herself to the bank gate in order to protest this. And then afterwards, Ben feels bad uh, and uh, they reconcile or whatever, but Catherine gets the land anyway. So Ghostwood is just going to happen. Like it kind of throws us all out the window. And that's something that like concerns me more than the Annie stuff, because the Annie stuff seems like something that you could use as the kernel of the story of whatever's next in terms of uh, Mm -hmm. a, a divergent continuity. This stuff would really muddy the waters of the few things that Audrey's character and Ben uh, Ben's character, the few things of what they had going on in their arcs towards the end of Twin Peaks, if this is what we pick mm-hmm. up on. Um, because it's a far less uh, interesting situation. I hate to say it, even though I have to say then like he has to reenact the Civil War and win in order to, to get to the carrot chomping and feel a jacket wearing. But like the refocus at that eleventh hour on the sort of ecological struggle and the basic Ben Catherine property struggle was like one of the kind of positive upticks towards the very end of the show. And this feels yeah. like it resets things prior to uh, discovering uh, the identity of Laura's killer even. Um, It doesn't work for me. Yeah, I agree. But I think for me, the idea that there are two possible outcomes and we are switching or this text presents um, the second of the two or the, the one that was not portrayed in the TV series really... Smacks of the multiverse theory. I hate uh-huh. to say it. Um, there's just something about like, I mean, it's that it's that coin flip. Like in one universe, this is how that current ripples, and the other universe, this is how that current ripples. IDK. Maybe that's not where this is going. Multiverses are really hot in 2016, so bring them on. I'm not sick of them yet. <laughs> um, I think. Here's here's the thing that I uh, feel and or at least I am putting my trust in is that um, Twin Peaks will be far more subtle about it. I have to I have to believe than any other show would be. I mean, we we made our our Westworld joke at the top of the show, but I think uh, you know more so than for for web traffic and so forth. There should really be a deep dive done into how that show was constructed and how easily the online community not only put forward theories that were dead on, but rallied around them and were basically certain 
without without leaked info, but we're basically certain in the outcomes and what was going to happen next on the show uh, prior to it happening. Um, because it's not like that hasn't happened in isolated or you know uh, lesser instances before. But the narrative around that show was everyone was talking about it. Clearly, there was some kind of mystery going on, but mm-hmm. without much to go off of, people like quickly reconstructed uh, the the things that that show was doing with time and with its characters and with its mysteries well ahead of several key reveals. Um, and I think it's because they were heavily telegraphed. And the thing is, like, I can't even imagine at its most obvious during the original run, Twin Peaks telegraphing something uh, such that you could just get it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are two explanations for that at play, though. One is that the series was being written as it was being shot, so it wasn't always possible to anticipate where yeah. the storyline was going. But the second being, if we look at Fire Walk With Me as an example of maybe a template for where Lynch might be going as the head creative mind on this series, that's a really um, opaque film, and we've talked about it a bunch. Um, And I think, like, one thing that Lynch is fond of that I feel like Westworld could have benefited from was just red herrings. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Lynch is so explicit as to say, like, I'm going to lead the viewer down this path. But having strange things that are ambiguous and could be part of the plot, could just be atmospheric, could just be strange for the sake of being strange, um, and not going out of his way to explain them or bring them into alignment with the themes and the plot of the series um, in the way that we sort of see Mark Frost doing in this text. Yeah. Another thing that I think, I mean, it's, we, we've got so much to, to, to sort of allay our fears on this point, not the least of which is that this is a continuation of something that's very old. And a lot of what it's going to have to do is, is navigate that territory, both in the reality of the show and, and sort of in terms of doling out information in, in a, in a, in a meta sense. Right. Um, and, I think about you know uh, let's do it because it's a key feature of our of our show. Uh, I think about Lost here, and I think about how in its first <laughs> season, it established a number of uh, key mysteries that really started out as like stylistic things, kind of creepy, weird things that weren't even necessarily mm-hmm. like that plotty. Uh, that later on did get explanations or sort of were nodded to and then you could easily cobble together what was at play with the context of the whole show. What I'm thinking of particularly are the whispers in the jungles. Um, yes. And people could theorize about those and uh, and certainly, uh, you know, I think there's there's a definitive reading of what those were by the time the show is over. But for the first couple seasons... It's just this thing that kind of rears its head and builds tension. It is it is a it is a thing that that comes in and sort of signals uh you know a threat or is there to remind you that you know this place 
obeys these different rules, even when it was getting into mythology about hatches and electromagnetism and, and offering all these weird explanations, there was something that was just still unsettling about that, about that addition to the show's universe because it was allowed to have breathing room versus a show like Westworld, which seemed like, you know, for our first season, let's have all these, you know, puzzle box threads, most of which are going to resolve, uh, to the point where in the last episode there are some pretty obvious things that they do where they're like we could go in this direction or this direction for a season two and it's like you know but but not so much things other than like what does it mean to to be uh, a thinking ai uh like that's never been explored before that are being advanced and it's like I can get that a million other places. What makes this thing stand out? And Twin Peaks has so much of that that I, you know, it seems statistically unlikely that we could get a version of this show that's obsessed with being a a tightly uh, constructed puzzle box as opposed to a a stylistic journey. Um, so I'm not too worried, I guess. But I don't yeah, like the I mean, Ben that's Audrey a fair decision. Point. I I do wonder like how much the secret history of Twin Peaks is going to be incorporated into the new series. It does seem to be perhaps setting up some things, um, especially with the introduction of Truman's brother, who Mm -hmm. I don't remember him being mentioned in the series, but I might be being forgetful. I don't think he was mentioned at all. Uh, But we see that there's a Frank Truman uh, referenced as a member of the uh, high school football team. Uh, who's also uh, um, a member of the Bookhouse Boys by extension. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people are speculating that that means that um, Robert Forrester, who's been confirmed and by some sources is a minor spoiler, uh, but also it's been so long since this information got out there. This show's been in production for so long. Um, Some people are thinking that he might replace Truman and it's possible that he's playing Frank as opposed to taking over a role. Though of course in Twin Peaks uh, you can, you can Moira Kelly a role evidently. Um, So that's very true. I, you know, just want to put it out there. We've talked about this before. I would love to see Hawkins Sheriff. He demonstrates good sense even when he is being really opinionated about Ed's love life. <laughs> um, so so the other big uh, new character that seems to be being set up is the FBI agent assigned by Gordon Cole to look over the dossier. That's kind of the beginning uh, of this text. Um, leaving annotations throughout signed, TP by the end of the text this is revealed to be an FBI agent by the name of Tamara Preston there is no one by that name or no character by that name no actor corresponding to that character on the IMDb list but we have tons and tons of actors uh, who are confirmed whose characters are not confirmed Um, yeah you want to talk about some of the speculation surrounding Tamara I have literally no doubt that we're gonna see this person there's no way that you could set up a character this big and this in the know who's going to be the perfect vantage point for the audience and then just let them die. Yeah. I, I think that the, the, uh, unfortunately like the mystery of who the archivist is, is sort of more important to this as a text. And then it's like quickly, uh, becomes clear. I think to anyone who's part of the audience for this, 
this text that it's Garland. Um, and then the mystery of who TP is, like you can see from the the start that like this is going to set up, you know, this is going to be the dangling carrot for someone we'll probably see in season three. Uh, and so Tamara Preston, like, okay, we're assuming that this uh, person, given, you know, the assumed gender of the name, is uh, going to be played by a woman. And then a lot of people, just because of the, uh, you know, if we're assuming this character is going to be a big character, a lot of people have uh, kind of settled on. Also, this might be influenced by some leaks, which we're definitely not going to talk about in terms of like people snapping surreptitious photos and things, but people have uh, sort of rallied around the idea that because it's one of the biggest names on the list that uh, Tamara Preston might be played by Naomi Watts. Um, Could also be uh, Amanda Seyfried, for all we know. We really don't (laughs) know. Could be Michael Sarah. I mean, there's some speculation. Um, Oh, true. I mean, I wouldn't, like... I'm not going to be surprised by any cameo in this series. It's definitely going to be the biggest TV event of 2017, and it seems pretty evident that they could get anyone they wanted to do this. You think this is going to qualify as the biggest television event of 2017? I think Westworld Season 2 is not going to be as good as Westworld Season 1. I think it's going to hit that sophomore sophomore slump. slump a la... What? Oh, no, that's sophomore slump. Yeah, sophomore slump a la Mr. Robot, although I didn't mind season two that much. Um, And honestly, like, with the landscape of this year's award season, talking about the Golden Globe nominations that were released today, uh, I think that, like, the field's wide open for a big TV event. Yeah, I just think that there is still... And Atlanta's not going to be on the air next year because uh, Childish Gambino is going to be Lando Calrissian. <laughs> um, I, I just think that I uh, there's, there's still a question of whether or not the Twin Peaks audience has grown to the point where you will pull in the... or have already over time pulled in the sufficient mass to be the thing that everybody wants to talk about. If a significant portion of people who might hear about it, then go like, I got to watch 30 episodes of this show from the nineties, like, and a movie. No, thanks. Um, like I, I still encounter plenty of people who like know what twin peaks is, but have no interest in watching it. Um, probably primarily because it's not as if they're averse to binge watching shows, but because it is something that uh, by virtue of being old enough has kind of calcified uh, just, just seems a little old to people who are off put by that. And also uh, kind of, you know, it's, it's got its fans. And I think for, for some people, if they don't feel like they can leap in, and and if they feel like they're not going to be able to claim that fandom, they're averse to it for that reason. Um, so I, I hope I, mean, I hope the reaction is great. Fair. But. That's fair, but I think a lot of it is actually like I think I think the Twin Peaks fan base has remained pretty strong through the years. I think it's grown. I think it has achieved cult status. Like how big that is yet to be seen. I think a lot of this is going to kind of hinge on how Showtime markets it. I think that. 
building up the mystery uh, among the hardcore fans was a really smart decision because the production isn't being torn apart by hardcore fans uh, looking for errors who are ready to criticize, uh, you know, set photos and stuff like that, although I'm sure that's occurring online. Uh, but, you know, by locking this down, I think that's really playing into Showtime's favor to date. Um, I'm going to be really curious to see how they go about selling it to a new audience. I think, um, so long story short, I signed up for a Showtime free trial, uh, the night of the election because I thought I was going to just watch Stephen Colbert's election coverage and just like enjoy myself, drink some champagne. Oh boy. That is not what happened. I took Xanax and went to bed at like nine o'clock at night. Um, but then I was stuck with this like trial that I just had to see through. So I just mainlined a shit ton of Showtime. Um, and it's really interesting because I think Showtime is really good at creating, um, a lot of buzz around their shows. Like a lot of their shows like Homeland and Masters of Sex and The Affair uh, and even House of Lies garner awards and um, have really good marketing campaigns. And some of them are just not as good as I want them to be. And I don't know if that's me specifically, but there's something about the Showtime machine where they can get a little um, disaligned with their marketing and the product, I think. And often it works to their advantage because I think they are able to draw in um, an audience or draw in critical acclaim um, that might be unwarranted or in some way mismatched. But in any case, um, I'm going to be curious to see how Showtime handles the marketing uh, and how they handle the framing of this series. I mean, I'm excited because I think almost certainly I'm going to wake up one morning and walk to the subway and then I'm going to be staring a full-size Twin Peaks ad in the face. And that will I will probably not be able to contain my excitement in that moment. Uh, like, I, I believe there will be a rollout. I just, like, you think about what the big shows are today, even in spite of their failings. Um, and, you know, if you try to think of, like, does does a Twin Peaks... Does it get recapped and and buzzed by the press in the same way that a Game of Thrones does? Like, hopefully it will be Twin Peaks enough to almost, like, work against that. Um, And I say that as someone who did a fucking Twin Peaks podcast where we go through the whole show. Like... (laughs) Our reason for doing that was because we felt like we wanted to take the time to uh, have fun with it and appreciate the the kind of strange quirks that we like and that aren't all about twists and the and the the well acted relationships, while also then trying to give some space to the subtlety of craft as opposed to fucking crazy shit with the white walkers this week and like oh i guess this character who's probably gonna die off next season there was some good acting there too like i feel like that kind of model could could work against twin peaks but then again i'm not as big of a tv head i'm sure there's plenty of things that are and also plenty of shows like that that are having subtle enough discussions had about them regardless of how kind of schlocky they can be um but i i think it will have to to, to fight against that in some way. And part of me says that the way they should fight against that 
should not be to basically for the marketing rest on their laurels. If you want to get people right. on board, if you want to get them ready, uh, both as returning watchers and as new watchers for what is going to come next, you have to sell them on this not being more Twin Peaks and not on it being a nostalgia play, which Mark Frost has touched on personally and we'll we'll talk about before the end of the show. But I think you need to I think you need to give them the hook. And the hook can't just be like it's more Twin Peaks uh, or it's like a mm-hmm. cool prestige television show. Let me run this by you. If you were walking down the street in Portland, uh, more mm-hmm. likely you would see this online somewhere. But imagine you're walking down the street in Portland and you see a poster and it's the red curtains and the black and white zigzag floor and the Twin Peaks logo uh, showtime. And then underneath it says, who killed Tamara Preston? <gasps> like they need to get back to the, the crux of what the show was, which is that more than any of these shows that gets talked about online now the show had a hook at the start and it was a central mystery and it was a deep dive into who this person was that then turned up all this dirt about a town and if that aspect is there and if it's also properly flagged in the marketing i think yeah i think it could be a television event because other shows have tried to recapture that very that very thing um, since. I just think that they cannot rest on nostalgia. Yeah. Well, and I was even going to say, I think that the market is wide open for another show like that. Like the shows that have tried to draw in um, audiences through similar hooks. I think most of them have ended. I think the killing is over. Mm -hmm. Uh, True Detective is not coming back. Um, Stranger Things, I think not the same central mystery by any means, but I think people are like primed and ready for a mystery, a little bit of weirdness. I think this is like a, a as good a time as any for the reboot to premiere. Yeah, I do want to say one point. This is the first episode we've recorded since the phenomenon that was Stranger Things, and I got really upset. Like, I liked that show. I pretty much watched through all eight episodes in the course of like a day. Um, but then the comparisons that were thrown around to Twin Peaks when it's like, yeah, this no, thing it's... is, yeah, this thing is a Stephen King novel. Like that's what it is. And Twin Peaks is not that. Um, or at the very least, Twin Peaks wasn't a Stephen King novel until Stephen King started writing novels after Twin Peaks was around. You know, you might say one of yeah, those things no, had I the agree. other way influence. But um, on the point of... Uh, the identity of the show and nostalgia and so forth. And I think this is a really important point uh, with regards to uh, this book and Mark Frost. So I'm glad we waited to do this episode until now is that Mark Frost was interviewed about season three and about how it was going to handle the 25 year gap. And I think the interviewer was trying to plug Mark for sort of uh this this trend towards nostalgia sequels like a fuller house uh or you know a sequel <laughs> to the movie independence day and so forth and mark said that something that informs twin peaks season 3 is 
we're all trapped in time and we're all going to die. Yes. And, <laughs> and if that doesn't make this you This is what I think about. <laughs> stoked for season 3, I don't know what possibly could because you I th- I think that if anything if that's uh if that's highlighting anything it's highlighting like yeah, we're not going to shy away from the fact that these actors are 25 years older. And in the case of someone like Dana Ashbrook, it means they're fine as hell. Um, it also means that unfortunately we've lost some very dear, uh, dear friends. Uh, but there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, those actors have changed as actors and that will influence how this goes, but hopefully that will then play intelligently into how their characters are. And I think generally it shows that this isn't, this isn't like, you know, the David Lynch, Mark Frost retirement tour, like the the one last paycheck before uh, they call it quits. If anything, given who they've got involved and, and the time and, and care being put into this and how stubborn David was, it shows that they want to make more of the show that they made together. And that... Uh, mm-hmm even with the warts of uh, let you know let's set aside studio meddling in season two but even with the things that weren't um, great uh, you know that didn't live up to the rest of the standards set by Twin Peaks um, that's exciting uh, to, to think that it is being approached with that in mind um, I don't know do you do you have do you have Mark Frost feelings based on that quote because uh, if not, I, I do want to talk about it in the context of this book as well. You know, I'm just glad that in 2016 we're talking about the inevitable end even more. <laughs> um, right, bring on that content. <laughs> bring on that death content, yeah. Um, and I think, I think that that quote from Mark with regards to the show... Um, really brings home for me that I think that there was a self-awareness in the way he approached making this book, you know, given the opportunity for Mark Frost to make a book about Twin Peaks, he was like, what's, what are, what are my strengths? What are my interests? How can I leverage those in a way to create something that I like and that I think the fans will like, even if the way in which they like it, some of the most diehard among them is to, uh, get mad about it or be worried by it and at me on Twitter and ask me strange questions to my face, though not as strange as the guy who asked about Gerson Hayward. Um, I, I do think that he he gets what the show is, and I think that mm-hmm. when it comes to this book, he made a book that's like, you know, uh, a, a, a smart, savvy stamp by him on the the picture even beyond the show you know i think it's one that engages with the fans and so it's like it's a book that engages almost with the fandom more than it does with the 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 themes of the show as i think we can distill them to and that's cool that's fine it's cool that it's a media project uh of that kind of scope that and that it's allowed to exist so i'm i'm happy to have read this book and to have been able to talk about it with you ashley 
Yes. Um, I'm sending you a Dana Ashbrook stock photo that I just found on <laughs> Google Images. Uh, are you? How are you sending it to me? Via text? Uh, text message? Yes. Uh, should I wait for... Oh. You know, you mentioned our boy, and I just wanted to know, is he getting more work now that he's going to be back to claim his throne as one of the most versatile actors on TV? And the answer is yes. Um, this so is... I'm glad to hear that. And yeah, I'm... <laughs> wait, this, hold on. That's Dana. I swear to God that is Dana. Uh, did you Google search Dana Ashbrook? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely him, but it looks like it's post-Twin Peaks. Uh, it is. It's 1997. It's... Wow. So he was. there's just a point in his career where he was getting that stock photo money and not... Man, that's yes. kind of... Yes. That's kind of sad because one, you look at him in this photo and he's still clearly very handsome. Uh, but yeah, it's just sad to think that maybe 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 he got typecast for a while because of Twin Peaks or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, we it. can talk about his IMDb later because uh, he was also in. Um, I really cannot for the life of me determine whether he's in the movie Crash or the Star series Crash. Uh, you know, we'll talk about his IMDb later. Maybe one spin-off episode I would be amenable to doing is just a something about Dana Ashbrook. <gasps> something else featuring Dana Ashbrook. Something about Dana. <laughs> um I would Yeah. I would live for that. This this text plays into Mark Frost's strengths. Um I'm going to be curious to see like what bearing the alien stuff has on the third series and ultimately like the mythology that David is working with. I'm going to be curious to see where those two diverge. It's clearly meant to set up uh, season three, but at the same time, it's really hard to reconcile uh, some of the text as we've discussed with what we know of the series. So I don't know. Bring on the multiverse, as I said. Hmm. hmm. I'm, <laughs> I'm of a mind that I, I I'll, I, I'm like confident that they're not gonna go hard on the alien stuff and then watch it happen and then boy will I have egg on my face. Um uh I mean we will see. Okay, it, it was the T V series crash. It was the T V series crash. Okay, glad we glad we settled that small mystery. Uh which crash was Dana Ashbrook in? That's the tagline for I mean, I I <laughs> wish that he was in the Cronenberg crash. Oh boy! I uh, really yeah, wish I, that he was in the Cronenberg crash. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Nope. I think nope. in the hierarchy of crashes, Cronenberg crash, which is all about people who are turned you on by car accidents. You sent me another another picture of Dana Ashbrook. <laughs> yeah, that's him in the TV series Crash, which is below the movie Crash and at the bottom of the hierarchy of. Cinematic works titled Crash. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Also, he doesn't he doesn't look so great with the he looks like Johnny Knoxville in this photo. Which he is really not does. a compliment. Um okay, okay. Anyway. But uh, it's our boy. I, it's our boy, and with that I think we're we're mostly done talking about the the secret history of Twin Peaks. Um of course, I I can't say either of these quotes at the end of the show because there's a way that we end this show. It's it's how we do. Um, 
So I, I feel like I wanted to say them here. And one is the last thing that Tamara Preston writes uh, in the book. And then one is the last thing written in the book, which is in quotation marks in The Secret History of Twin Peaks. But it's unclear as to who's being quoted, who's reproduced this quote, anything. It's mystery, it, uh, mysterious in a good way. That is, um, that is what I was trying to say. So let, me, let me read the first one here. As director Cole once told me, that time he took me out for a coffee, a big part of this job, and for that matter, life itself, is waiting for the right moment. I think everything that's gone on, uh, the 25-year absence of this show, that would be a good enough point to end the book on. But Ashley, if you could just read the familiar-sounding but expanded thing at the very end of the book. The very end of the book? Yes, it's at the bottom of the Google document. Oh, yes, I also have it open. The owls may indeed not be what they seem, but they still still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness. Spooky, ominous point to end on. And also... Who the hell is responding to the owls are not what they seem? I don't know. I truly DK. Um, I don't know so, if you saw Mark Frost's AMA additionally. Oh, no, I did not. Is this oh, the modern equivalent now? Wait, not- hold on. <laughs> I didn't mean to cut you off. Is the, is the AMA now the modern equivalent now that we're in present day? of the uh of the bulletin boards of your are you going to have to go into reddit threads for <laughs> twin peaks episodes for no, season 3 No, I will not. I will <laughs> not. I will not subject myself to that. Um <laughs> but Mark Frost okay, I was trying to like do some due diligence, do some research. I was like this man is promoting a book. He is going to do an AMA. I was right. Um there's not a lot to be gleaned because it's a lot of like all will be revealed. Thank you for getting that reference. Thank you for your compliments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The most interesting thing that I think he says that ties in not a ton to the owls, but a little bit. Um, someone asks about Josie and why she goes into uh, her spirit goes into the nightstand instead of another available object. Uh, and he really? Says, Hint wood. Mm. I mean that that with regards to uh I mean we we see that play it out a little bit in in the log lady's backstory in this book actually. Um I think people have mm-hmm. made the log Josie connection for a while. The question is he felt like reaffirming that 25 years later are we going to see mm-hmm. Joan Chen trapped in a drawer pull in season 3 because if so, I don't know if That's I can do good... it. I don't know if I can do it guys. That's another thread. I mean, much like I think Donna, the real question is like, <laughs> who else are we going to see trapped in some wooden furniture? Oh boy, hopefully not Dana. Um, well, this has been <gasps> Twin Peaks Peaks uh, for the first time in months, and maybe, maybe for the last time until uh, season three. Who knows? Let us know on Twitter if you would like to to hear more from us in the interim. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. It's at Twin Peaks Peaks. You can find this podcast online at our homepage, 
It's twinpeakspeaks.simplecast.fm. I believe uh, there's some other social media avenues to to find us through, but that's where the podcast lives, and Twitter is honestly the best way to reach us. You can also tweet at me, I'll say, individually. It's at Matthew Olson, M-A-T-H-E-W-O-L-S-O-N. Uh, I do another show called Can You Get to That? It's a Wikipedia racing podcast that I do with my friend Caitlin Best. We're still doing it. And uh, you can find that on Twitter. It's at get to that. And in the interim, between uh, doing our missing pieces episode and this episode, I did a podcast mini series with my friend Alex Clute called Finite Jest. And I'm really excited to tell the loyal Twin Peaks listeners who don't otherwise uh, check out what I do uh, about this one because we read Infinite Jest in six weeks. Uh, the runtime of those episodes adds up to be 14 hours. The last one is four hours long. We pushed ourselves through that book uh, with the help of uh, a lot of Rolling Rock beer. Um, and I don't know. I, I if, if you think I'm uh, snarky on this show, uh, I'm intentionally sort of playing it up on that show. Uh but there is some actual we we do engage with the text i think if if you're interested if you ever have liked any of my rambles on this show you might think it's worth checking that one out the tagline for that one uh it's not as good as who killed laura palmer uh but it is we're reading it so you don't have to that's finite jest you can find it at finitejest.simplecast.fm ashley if you could tell the listeners where to find you and on twitter and where to find uh, your 12, 13 podcasts. You know what? I'm just here to plug one podcast and one podcast only, and that is uh, my proudest accomplishment to date, uh, the K-Hole, a Kardashian podcast, which you can find on Simplecast. Uh, it is the K-Hole.Simplecast.fm. You can also find us on Twitter at the K-Hole podcast. You can also find us on iTunes um, under the K-Hole podcast Brooke Marine and I discuss uh, IRL breaking Kardashian news as well as break down the most recent apps of modern masterpiece keeping up with the Kardashians. It's honestly a ton of fun. We get super existential. We talk about other celebrity news. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, if you like Twin Peaks, I don't know. Maybe you'll like that. Maybe you will surprise yourself. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Ashley Brandt. Uh, I don't know, figure out how to spell my name. And um, you should rate and review Twin Peaks Speaks on iTunes if you like what you've heard. I can't believe we talked about this book for two hours. I really thought this was going to be 40 minutes at the most. Um, you forget that our like average runtime for this show ended up being two hours when we were talking about an hour of television uh, despite our best efforts. So... I'm actually very glad that it only took this long. Um, also, one final uh, mini plug for uh, a show that you're actually involved in. Uh, I did an episode of Pulp on The Elephant Man uh, where I filled your role, Ashley Brandt. Uh, I was Ashley Brandt for an episode with Johnny Flores uh, on Pulp, the podcast based on a true story. Uh, just go on iTunes and search Pulp Elephant Man 
if you don't find the podcast, you've probably found something weird. Uh, so <laughs> I think I think that's it. You know, we've we've covered our David Lynch bases, we've covered our Kardashians bases, and our uh, David Foster Wallace's. So, uh, do you remember how we end this show, Ashley? Um, I remember two different endings. The big Uh-oh. question is, which will I choose? Oh, no. Oh, gosh. I'm going to dislike <laughs> one of them if you do it. Do you not want me to do the other one? It's up to you. I don't I, I don't like to force your hand here. Ugh. Don't forget to brush your teeth, Harriet. Thank you.